I'm Kathy Rakowski, and I'm the chair of OSU's Association for Women in Development. And um, I'm pleased to welcome you to this, the last in our speaker series, not only for this academic year, but the final speaker series in what has been 23 years of speaker series, because OSU WID is ending its programming as of this academic year. So you're very special. You're showing up for our final and absolutely excellent lecture by Dr. Isis Nusser. First, I'd also like to thank our co-sponsors for today, the Center for Middle East Studies, the, Women's, the Department of Women's Studies, and of course, the Mershan Center, which for the last approximately 12 years has provided us with an administrative home, with administrative assistance, and with considerable funding for our speaker program. Um, Dr. Nusser is an assistant professor in the International Studies and Women's Studies programs at Denison University. She holds a BA from Tel Aviv University, a master's from the University of Notre Dame, and a doctorate from Clark University. She has a number of publications, and what I'll do is I'll read some of the titles, just to jog your memories, because I'm sure you've seen the announcements. But uh, the first is Gendered, Racialized, and Sexualized Torture at Abu Ghraib, um, and is published in a collection entitled Feminism and War, Confronting U.S. Imperialism, which came out in 2008. Another of her book chapters is Gendered Politics of Location, Generational Intersections in Women and the Politics of Military Confrontation, Palestinian and Israeli Gendered Narratives of Dislocation, which was published in 2002. And I'd like to mention that she has several forthcoming publications, including a book, Palestinians in Israel Revisited, which she edited or is editing with Rhoda Kana and will be, or Kanana, Kanana, and it will be published by SUNY Press in 2009. So the current present presentation for today is Gendered Bodies, Gendered Wars, Iraqi Women Refugees in Jordan, and it's based on her extensive research with Iraqi women refugees during 2007 and 2008. So please help me welcome Dr. Assis Nasser. Thank you very much. Oh, I guess I have to turn this on. Is it on? Oh, yes. Um, thank you, Kathy, for um, this wonderful introduction. Um, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for the Women's Studies, for the Merchant Center. Um, and I hope I won't disappoint anyone by being the last of the last of the last. Um, thanks, Kathy, for organizing this for the last 10 years, and I appreciate the invitation. Um, what I will do today is I will speak for about half an hour, uh, and hopefully we'll have um, plenty of time for questions. Um, it's, is there an echo? Or? Should I turn one? Melody will solve it. Because I have the loud, loud mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think. Can so. you hear me? Yeah. Great. Um, what I will do is I'll share with you. Um, this is work in, in progress, part of a larger, extensive project that I'm working on. Uh, where for the last two years I've been interviewing Iraqi women refugees, and we're talking urban refugees. So most of the women that I interviewed were based in or were living in 
two um, areas in Amman mostly, and also I interviewed last time I was there, a woman in Zarqa, which um, actually refugees now who cannot afford to live in Amman because it's so expensive are moving to um, the outskirts, to the areas that might be cheaper to afford in terms of living. Um, my aim for the next few years actually is to interview women, uh, Iraqi women refugees in Syria because as you all know, the largest population of refugees post-2003 uh, is now um, uh, between Syria and um, Jordan. The estimates, and these vary, is that there is about uh, one and a half million um, refugees between these two um, countries, uh, with Syria actually holding more than two-thirds of those. Uh, and then uh, what I actually found out after I continued with my work is that some of the women I interviewed in Jordan are getting asylum uh, in the United States. So again, this is part of a larger continuum to also trace and see if any of the women make it here, what kind of conditions they live at, how is that different from what they faced in, in Amman, Jordan, or in Syria, uh, and also what are the challenges they face as they continue with these um, um, with what I call actually location and dislocation. Um, so again, this paper is based on extensive research. I conducted 80 interviews in 2007 and 2008, um, not only with Iraqi women refugees, but also with uh, representatives of aid, um, national and international aid organizations. Uh, I also spoke with representatives of UNHCR, which is the United Nations um, High Commission um, Office for Refugees. Um, what I was interested in mainly is what prompted these women to um, leave Iraq, and nobody just picks up and leave, right? There are certain reasons, and I was very interested in the um, um, gendered factors within that. I was also very interested in the transition, and looking at it as a continuum allows us also to understand across time um, what goes through, um, what challenges they face, uh, and what are the gaps in particular in terms of provision of aid, addressing the particular needs of women. I'm not saying that the, the women have needs and no other population have needs, but my paper tries to argue that there are particular needs for women that need to be taken into account and that it's important for us to understand those. Um, and then what I look at actually, and from talking to the women and through the interviews, one theme that came up very, very strongly is also um, how they cope, the coping mechanisms, the networks that develop, networks of support, network, networks also for dissemination of information, uh, and also how they negotiated with the conditions of extreme dislocation and instability in their lives because these moments actually are tough moments. So what kind of coping me mechanisms um, they were developing and what role did networks, formal and informal, played in, in that? Another thing that I'd like to mention in the beginning is I chose to interview women from different backgrounds. And I'm not saying by any means that my um, sample is representative because it's not. But at least I made a conscious decision to interview women who came from urban and rural areas in Iraq originally. So I didn't only interview middle class women who came from Baghdad. Um, I also um, tried my best to interview women who had different educational backgrounds, um, class, ethnicity, religion, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and therefore, that meant that I went also and interviewed women in different parts of the city because depending on how much money you have or how much saving you brought with you, you it would determine whether you're, you're able to rent a small one-room apartment in um, the east side of Hamman or buy an apartment, actually, in a place um, 
um, in the more expensive areas of Hamman, like Um Udayna. So that's another thing I'd like to mention. Um, and then one of the, um, um, the things that I will focus on in terms of my presentation today is what came up in those interviews. So what I'm going to do is share with you um, what, what came up in those um, narratives and what does this tell us and what kind of questions this raises about our understanding of the specificity of Iraqi women refugees but also of women refugees um, um, uh, on a larger scale. So a recurring theme that came up in the interviews relates to women's relation to their new place and this new space. Um, the transient, and there was lots of contradictions and also the descriptions they used. On the one hand, they see it as their home, right? Uh, but it's transient and it's not permanent, but it is permanent if you've been there for years, right? And some actually came in 2003, 2004, though the majority of the ones I interviewed didn't come immediately after the war. It was two or three years into it. Um, the second was the visibility and invisibility of their presence. So there were times when they were very, very, very visible in their communities and others invisible, and they focused a lot in terms of the narratives on, on this constant um, uh, visible and invisible uh, and legal and illegal presence in, in Jordan, um, and how that contributed to, to their feeling of vulnerability. Uh, and this vulnerability, actually, and as a, a scholar of women's studies, um, I always get very uh, bothered when women and children, right, we all know are termed in big parentheses as if women um, are less capable, uh, put in with uh, minors, and also uh, always as a category in need of protection. So what I do in my work is actually I problematize the term vulnerability and, uh, and argue that women in this context are active agents and they, that they are connected to networks that help them survive, but that doesn't mean that there aren't particular um, situations and contexts and conditions that um, make them more vulnerable structurally um, to, in the environment in which they live. They are particularly vulnerable to sexual harassment, uh, resulting from the widespread othering perception of them as refugees, for one, but the other also... Um, um, that, they are, that they could be loose and sexually available. Uh, women interviewed negotiated daily, uh, albeit differently, with the system of control, especially when they ventured into the public sphere. It's important to note that women's status in the family in Iraq has been changing and that this change has um, started long before um, the women arrived in Jordan. And I'd like actually to stress throughout my presentation today is I'm not considering 2003 and Everything before is kind of irrelevant on the, on the contrary. I'm actually looking at the changes that have been happening in Iraqi society, um, if we say since the 50s, um, but particularly since the Ba'ath regime came into power in the late 60s. And I'm looking at the development, actually, and the gendering of women's status within the Ba'ath regime, um, changes in the law, changing of the status of women in the family. But particularly, as we all know, um, Iraq had major wars, uh, one with Iran from 1980 to 1988, uh, and then um, with the invasion of Kuwait in 1990 and the Gulf War in 1991, the imposition of the sanctions, which is a, a harsh regime of sanctions actually that affected nearly, as nearly every aspect of Israeli social and political and economic fabric of life and had detrimental effects as well on, uh, on women's lives. So I'd like us, as we think about these women refugees and the narratives and what I collected and what came up in the interviews to think about it within a larger continuum of what has been happening in Iraqi society throughout um, those previous decades. 
One thing to keep in mind is that um, roles within the family have been also changing as a result of demasculinization of the role of the Iraqi male as the sole provider, uh, and this was very apparent particularly during the sanctions period. Uh, many interviewees mentioned that uh, women are the ones expected to hold the family together, and they use the term is you hold it on your shoulders, right, or you hold it on your head. You keep it together and you carry the burden as you do that. Um, they have to provide for the family and look for aid, especially that they and their children uh, are less likely to be deported by the Jordanian um, authorities. So again, going to that women and children protection, some actually use it and turn it on its head because they are more likely, if they venture into the public sphere, to be, um, they are less likely to be deported if they venture into the public sphere. The challenge remains on how to bring a degree of dignity um, to the process of aid and how to involve the refugees in the design and implementation of some of the programs. Um, and what was interesting in the work, actually, and as I started interviewing um, representatives from aid, uh, from national and international aid organizations, the work that some of or the organizations did, which, which took into account particularly um, a more grassroots attitude to working with the refugees versus just providing services, uh, more coordination, including them in the decision-making process, and more empowerment position, particularly to women and to the gendering of the uh, politics of aid um, itself. And CARE, actually, International was in particular an organization that um, has been pursuing this approach very strongly. This, on the other hand, will not be completed without paying close attention as well to the networks where women can access information and receive uh, social and personal support. Uh, in the narratives, the women described a variety of reasons for why they left Iraq, including violence, um, the rising violence in their community, uh, killing, economic reasons. So uh, it's also important to think of the intertwine between the two. It wasn't always one or the other. It's a combination of, of different reasons, uh, ethnic cleansing of uh, their neighborhoods. Uh, and this was presented within the context and continuum of life in Iraq under the sanctions and of growing up with, war, with wars. Uh, as I said, first the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s, uh, followed by the Gulf War and the sanctions in the 90s, up until um, the U.S.-led invasion in 2003. One interviewee, uh, born in the 60s, emphasized in particular the militarization of her life, and these were her words, uh, and that she did not know any reality other than this. So she said, since I grew up, this is what I lived with. Uh, and she's currently actually a divorced woman, um, having to be responsible for three children um, living in Amman on her own. The narratives reflected the temporality and transient nature, yet still the permanency of their situation in Jordan, uh, while recognizing that the return to Iraq is not possible uh, in the near future, and staying in Jordan as legal and permanent residence is not possible either, um, the hope among many refugees is to seek asylum in a third country. And this is part of the tra transiency that I talked about earlier is can't stay in Jordan, can go back. Is there another country you can go to? And I'll explain further, actually, what are the options in that regard. Yet with the dwindling numbers of spots available for refugees in Europe, um, in the U.S., and Canada and Australia, this hope was um, marked even by the women themselves with skepticism. Um, as the, the prospect of returning to Iraq or settling in a third country was not there, and the hope of moving beyond Amman and Zarqa in the short and long term was not present either, uh, although not always acknowledged. The narratives in general emphasized Iraq as a country with resources, and people were very, very proud with their country, with the resources, with the history, 
Uh, and many women were angry, actually, more at the Iraqi government than the Jordanian or the Americans or the international community for not providing enough aid to the refugees because they say we have the money, why uh, we're not getting more support. The narratives focused on the importance of sustaining some kind of normalcy in the women's daily lives, particularly through networks of friends and access to aid organizations. The narratives in general did not focus on displacement and did not include the victimization language uh, of their situation. Um, and I, if I did a, a free association exercise in the beginning, and if I were to ask you, you know, give me a few words to describe your image, right, when thinking about a refugee woman, um, an Arab, a Muslim in the Middle East, what would you say, for example? What else? You'd also imagine tents and on the border, etc. And here we're talking about urban refugees, which could be very invisible in the communities because they look very much like other Jordanians, unless they open their mouth and then you can hear their Iraqi accent, or if they dress with a more traditional dress and they can be more obvious, but there are ways in which you pass, and it was fascinating actually to see the ways in which women actually um, negotiate through all of those levels and when they decide to be Iraqis in a more visible sense uh, and when not. Uh, but it's that normalcy um, in the women's daily lives that they had to, um, to constantly uh, negotiate with. Uh, the narratives in general did not focus on dis displacement and, as I said, did not include the victimization language. Uh, the emphasis was more on the present and the future alternatives. So it wasn't about the past. It was more about what is happening now and where are we going from here. Many kept saying, if only the situation was different, if we could work legally. And this word kept coming up the sentence over and over and over again, whether I interviewed women who brought money with them and are able to buy apartments and survive in, in Amman or in Zarqa, or those who actually came with nearly nothing and are dependent fully on the aid that's provided by these organizations, which is about $120 a month, which is not enough to do anything in Amman. Amman is a very, very expensive city, even for a researcher from the U.S. like myself. Um, the recognition that there is no return to Iraq, and this was very obvious across the board, um, at, at least not at this stage, was strongly present um, as well. Yet uh, although women said that they saw a lot, they did not center their narratives on trauma despite being subject to direct forms of violence and ethnic cleansing um, Two of the women interviewed were uh, abducted for ransom. One actually was a gynecologist, and the other woman... Um, comes from a rich family and her husband um, was a director of a bank. Uh, and many of the women um, that I interviewed lost family members, particularly post-2003, but also in the previous periods as well. Uh, in particular, they lost their livelihoods. Uh, some sold their property uh, for meager prices so they can leave. Um, and some were forced out of their neighborhoods. So it varies as well. I mean, there isn't one narrative, but you can see certain... Um, uh, themes um, and issues that um, cuts across um, the majority of the women I interviewed. Um, the narratives also did not include the romanticization of the past and of returning to Iraq. They did not compare the present uh, that they currently inhabit with the one they left behind, with the exception of few, of, of few women who emphasized, actually, while talking to me, that they lived in better conditions in Iraq than they were, because if I interviewed a woman who was living in um, a leaking one room in Amman, 
it was important for her to tell me that she had a house and a villa in, actually in, in Iraq. And this particular family, um, um, they were of um, Armenian origin. Um, they were afraid that they had a son and a daughter. They were afraid that the daughter will be abducted. So the, wom- the mother and the daughter are now in Amman and the father and the brother are still working back in Iraq and they're sending money, but it's expensive. And that's how they're coping with it. Some women preferred Jordan than being displaced, quote-unquote, in a country where they might not be as familiar with the language and culture. Uh, Jordan, for many, was a good place to live and bring up the children. And this was particular to women, to mothers who have children. Again, if only they could work and have legal status. It's worth indicating that the majority of women did not use the word refugee to describe themselves or their situation. And this is critical considering that the Jordanian government uh, treats them as guests. So the term that is used is duyuf in Arabic, which is um, plural for uh, guests. And it's also worth noting that neither Jordan nor Syria, um, the two countries with the highest number of Iraqi refugees in the region, are signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention. It's also important to note that the Jordanian government agreed in 1991 to allow UNHCR to establish its branch office in Amman, in Jordan. Uh, And especially in the case of Jordan, Jordan has been um, recipient, actually, of the largest number of Palestinian refugees since the 1948 uh, war. But UNRWA is a particular United Nations organization that was established to deal with the Palestinian refugees. So the Jordanian government, post the Gulf War, uh, allowed UNHCR to establish an office in, in Amman uh, and also signed the Memorandum of Understanding with UNHCR in 1998 concerning the treatment of asylum seekers and refugees where it agrees to admit refugees and asylum seek- seekers and respect UNHCR's refugee status de- determination. The memorandum also adopts the refugee definition contained in the UN Refugee Convention and forbids the refoulement of refugees and asylum seekers. So if an asylum actually seeker, or in this case, if um, Iraqi woman refugee um, got a card from UNHCR, so she registered with UNHCR, the Jordanian government can't deport her, right? But the Jordanian government can close the borders and not allow people to enter and exit just because they're afraid more people will come in. Um, And also, um, these refugees aren't allowed to work in Jordan. And it's worth noting that unemployment levels in Jordan are are high and also in Syria. And there is always this delicate negotiation in terms of if you allow the refugees to work, that will take away from the um, job opportunities available for the population. And also in the case of Jordan in particular, there's always that tension in terms of you don't want anything that might disrupt the regime's grip on power in terms of either... Uh, political strength or um, ethnic um, imbalance um, and so on and so forth. So within this context, actually, that these women, many of them were aware of all of those and it was always interesting to see also how they refer to themselves and why they use that particular uh, terminology. Work actually for um, for Iraqis in Jordan, um, you for some, a very small number, um, they got citizenship because they came in the 70s, uh, but their numbers are small. And for others, in order to work, you have to deposit a large sum of money as a guarantee, and uh, very few people could afford it. But those who could are actually able to operate, for example, a factory, invest in Jordan, and it's, it brought lots of money into the country. Uh, but we're not talking about majority of refugees who are able to do that. 
Finally, the narratives reflected especially limitations on the woman's space, both in, private, in the private and public sphere. Um, a young woman who had a professional degree talked about gaining weight as all she does is cook, clean, eat, and watch, and watch, uh, watch TV. And what she was referring to actually in particular is the confinement on her space since she is a teacher, she's, she cannot work, she cannot develop professionally, and also she's more conf confined as a result of that to... Um, um, to staying at home. In general, the levels of discourse were both apparent and hidden, direct and indirect. The emphasis was on the coping mechanisms and their status as visible yet invisible women in Jordanian society. And I want to just briefly talk about some of the coping mechanisms and the markers that illustrate that. The challenges the women face are both material and political. On the one hand, women are masculinized uh, and presented as wage earners because they could be invisible and less likely to be stopped in the street and deported by the Jordanian authorities. So some of them work um, you know, in domestic uh, work. Some sell informally in the streets. You, you sell, um, and they know that they are less likely to be deported, but it's a source of income, and many times it complements uh, a meager um, allowance that they get from the United Nations. Simultaneously, there are markers of honor and cultural tradition of their family, quote-unquote, and country. This duality was particularly present in the discourses of single or divorced women and of widows in particular. Um, one divorced woman kept her divorce secret because she was afraid that if people in the neighborhood knew that she was divorced, you know, she, she'll be... Um, uh, under scrutiny and surveillance, or some people might, um, you know, think that she's sexually available, etc. Uh, another widow actually described how the owner of the house where she lives knocked on her door at 3 a.m. Um, one time to ask for water, and she's a very, very strong woman. She actually works as a hairdresser and is able, uh, with the money that she gets from the United Nations, well, able barely, actually, uh, to feed her three children and, 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 you know, give them the education they need. So she started coming in, you know, so she invited him in, and her three kids were sleeping on the floor, and the guy got the message and left immediately. But, you know, not every woman is able to be this also bold and, 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 um, and determined in terms of um, her treating um, this particular form of sexual harassment. The challenges relate mostly to the uncertainty about their situation and how they could reclaim certain aspects of lost placeness and home within this new space of displacement. Um, this requires constant negotiation and empowering support from networks of friends and from relatives overseas, especially that the extended family of many of these women are now scat scattered between Iraq, Syria, and Jordan. And what was also interesting that some women were saving even from the 120 right, that they were getting from, their, uh, from um, the United Nations. They were saving some and sending back to their relatives in Iraq. Others were dependent on their relatives in Iraq to send them money. But it's always interesting to see how this networks because everyone chips in. And if you have a, relatives in a relative in Sweden who makes a bit more money, they're sending both to the relatives in Amman and also to the ones in, in, in Iraq. What was missed? Oh, sorry. This, in turn, could explain why the notion of home was not romanticized. What was missed is the economic and legal security and stability that are usually associated with home. As relation to home is multiple, 
uh, and constructions of home are complicated, especially within the context of confinement, the challenge remains on how to reclaim space and identity associated with this new space place. What does it mean to live there? And the fact that you could be there indefinitely, right? As we've said, you can go back. No other country will take you, but you're not legal in Jordan. How, how do you work with that? The specific possibilities of narration are part of the negotiation, in my view, um, that takes place in order to reconfigure and transform the present and future within the context of this lived experience. Narratives that constantly emphasize if we are allowed to work legally uh, and the story of seeking aid relates in part to the silence surrounding the subject, as the story has already been told more than once. So I wasn't the first person, right, to get to hear the story. But it's always interesting what kind of story is being told each time. How do you work with the silence? Uh, who do you tell your story to? What kind of story is told each time, depending on the person that you're telling it to? And all of these are important factors that I take actually into account in my analysis of the interviews themselves or of the narratives. Speaking about why they left, opens, uh, why they left Iraq opens uh, wounds and could produce silence, um, or the surviving of the day-to-day -day does not leave much space for talking about loss, pain, and suffering, especially to someone from outside the community. Um, you know, and I tried my best, actually, to volunteer and engage with the community because I'm very much against the parachute approach where you come in, land in from the U.S., you're there for a few weeks, and then you leave, right? And nobody hears from you. So I've been trying to visit as often as I could and also engage. Uh, particularly, there's a center that um, uh, provides English uh, classes to some of the women, um, has um, afternoon activities, etc., and there are lots of volunteers, including myself, who uh, participate uh, in the work of the center. Finally, um, how are these women to think about this location, dislocation? Um, is it complete, final, or is it part of a larger process that started, as I said, long before um, they left Iraq? My analysis emphasizes the linkages between these abstract and concrete spaces and their realization through active social practices and processes. Location, dislocation in this context refers to the refugee context and can be understood only with the multidimensional analytical framework. Uh, within this transient locational identities, the question remains on whether there is a space for challenging and going beyond these confining boundaries and limitations um, for the community at large and for women in particular. Uh, and in conclusion, uh, I think it's important to think of the role that class in particular plays in um, uh, migration patterns and how migration is embedded in political and social changes that have been in place in Iraq for the last few decades. Um, so again, I'm not looking at refugees only as it relates to war, right, and the political situation. I'm also looking at the intersection with the social and the economic within this context. Um, it's also important to challenge the dichotomy between the post and pre-2003 invasion uh, when talking about the different kinds of displacement and migration patterns, forced or vo voluntary, communal, or individual. Um, as with violence, it's important to think about it within the context of a continuum uh, and the impact that political and socioeconomic conditions have on the gendering of women's lives. Finally, it's important to think about the agency of women refugees and the complex and multi-level ways in which they are negotiating with this quote-unquote new reality in their lives. Uh, from the college professor, actually, communication professor who was a dean in Baghdad, a dean of her... Uh, of her um, 
Perry University, um, and she's able. Um, and although I said women can't work, for some there are exceptions. So if there is a need for women gynecologists, the Jordanian government grants you a permission um, so you can work. And actually one of the women that I interviewed, um, she has permission and she runs actually a section of the hospital. But that hospital caters mostly to Iraqi refugees, which is really interesting, or Iraqis living in Amman. So this woman who was a dean actually at the university in Baghdad, she works part-time teaching at the university in Jordan. And for her, everything is about defining that space and also defining her own um, space within it and the forms of resistance that she needs to employ at times in order to, to cope. Uh, and these span from what she teaches, how she teaches, what she wears, and what kind of even lipstick she might have on. And, and it was interesting talking to her to think of that continu continuum um, as well. Um, uh, another woman I interviewed is a performance artist, a very well, uh, actually, performance Iraqi artist. Um, she's well off economically, but she was she brought up a lot of concern about how she could develop her career still and not give that up. She's in her 40s. Uh, and also she talked about being a mother. She has um, um, her child actually, well, um, now 12 years old, has been in Jordan for the last six years. And it was a concern of her how he will be actually connected to a place that he hardly knows in terms of history, in terms of religion, in terms of culture, but also familiar uh, relations as well. Um, the last woman um, that I will mention actually is a woman um, whose story affected me very much in terms of, um, and this is why actually in part also my title is Gendered Bodies, Gendered Wars. Um, she had... Um, one miscarriage, one stillbirth since she came to Jordan in 2004. Uh, and it's as if, you know, talking to her, it's as if her body is refusing to grant her children in this new quote-unquote place. Um, she had two children she wanted to have another, uh, and she couldn't for, for years. Fortunately, last November she did. I did the interview in, in 07, summer of 07. Um, but it was very meaningful to her also through negotiation even uh, um, with that space and how her body was um, a site uh, for some of those uh, was interesting um, to, to talk to her about, but also um, think through in terms of the meaning uh, of, of the work that I've been doing for the last two years. The return home for one woman interviewed is about economic reasons and not nostalgia. She stressed dignity and said that it's better to be humiliated and beg in one's countries. Uh, in one's country than abroad, although the same woman, if, if I were to ask her, are you ready to go back now? And she'd say no, because she's worried in terms of the uh, political situation and fear for the safety of herself and her family. Gendered relations in this context are rife with challenges and complexities as women are supposed to keep their lives and families together under these conditions. Um, and this cuts across class, religious, and ethnic lines. Um, especially that what affects these women um, most is the transient and insecure nature of their existence, but not necessarily the insta uh, the, their inability to deal with it. So again, it's, um, it's the transient and insecure nature of their existence, but not necessarily their inability to deal with it. So in this note, I'll stop and hopefully uh, we'll open the space for more questions and um, engagement. Thank you. Thank you. 
Well, better, I don't know. I'm not in a position to compare, but the woman who um, is now, who works as a gynecologist, she had her own hospital in, in Iraq. So I don't think um, necessarily because she, and she she's not sure what happened to her hospital because some people were actually concerned. There's um, um, a famous author I talked to. She was actually very concerned about the collection of books uh, and paintings that she and her husband left behind in terms of, they hired a guard to take care of it, but they were, they were not sure if the guard was able to guard it. And if someone is living in their house, what happened to that collection that they uh, preciously um, left in their, uh, in their, um, in their basement? So I, I, it, it would be hard, actually, to say it's better or worse. Um, the fact that there is that skepticism, right, of they can go back, and they're not also able to see. Uh, for the woman, the gynecologist, I'm sure she has money, so she's able to live, and live actually, maybe not the way she did in Iraq, but live with means, and that means a different quality of life in Jordan, and that's completely different than the woman, for example, that I described, who had a miscarriage and a stillbirth, who came with nothing, who actually followed her husband, who came before her to look for a job in Jordan, they live in one room, two children, with nearly nothing. Well, I guess I would also want to know then, are they, the people who will have the higher wages, are they feeling more settled and less transient in their new No. And that's what I try to argue in my work, that even if you are, that doesn't mean you are less vulnerable, quote, unquote. I actually made, yes, and, I, and it was very important for me also to interview women with a variety of educational, professional backgrounds, as well as ethnic and, and religious, um, that cross ethnic and religious lines. I never asked a woman what's your religion, even throughout the interview. Uh, I should mention that the interviews are open-ended. I ask very, very broad questions, and it's important for me also to analyze what the woman brings up first and why certain themes come in certain way at certain parts of the interview. But it was very important, and this is why I did not focus. It's easy if I want to go to Udayna, where most of the Iraqis live, but it's a particular class of Iraqis. And I went to other parts of Hamman where, um, where I could interview women with different means. Yeah, and when I asked actually, Nadia, Nadia is a good friend of mine, and, and I teach that book, and I, we sent her an email from the class asking, you know, why it was, why did she have to make that decision? And she writes back and says, um, it was also what was available for her, and she needed to do that work, but that doesn't mean that future work should remain within that realm. So that's a very, very important work, but I think it's important also to see what effects this have. And, and I think in my work, you see also how certain things cuts across and how certain things are not as similar. So I, I was able, within the uh, samples that I got, to at least have some, some space to compare between the two. Thank you. Yes. But I think it's important to think of the p position where that woman is as she writes. Is she permanently living in, 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 in Iraq? 
or is she, uh, or she had citizenship, she has citizenship and has been living in London for uh, who knows how many years. Um, the woman I talked to and the work that I emphasize in terms of the analysis is that um, these are urban refugees. These are women negotiating on a daily basis with what it means to live in, in, in this context, right, in this situation uh, and, and coping with it. The other thing that I think comes up is also they weren't sitting with me to romanticize because I think part of the writing and interviewees are aware of that is they want also people to be aware of it. So there's a certain maybe if a woman was sitting and writing poetry to herself or a story, she'd give a different story than the one she gave to me. Uh, although I think the narratives would have been able to depict nostalgia if it was there, and, and it is there. It's not that it isn't, but it wasn't the one emphasized in the, during the interviews. I hope that answers, but it's a very, very complex, and that relates also to the whole issue of being, quote-unquote, a victim, because women did not also speak of themselves as victims, and that cuts across from a woman who has nothing to a woman who has a lot that the representation wasn't, it's the coping mechanisms and the agency that many times in our thinking about refugees is completely absent, but it's very present in the way they perceive themselves and their realities. Yes? Yeah, you said that um, you weren't interviewing particularly women who had fled because of the war, but women who had left for other reasons. What no, I interviewed all, but not all left because of the war is what I'm trying to say. Right. Well, what are some of the reasons Yeah, some, many, yeah. Violence. Some were members of the Ba'ath Party. One woman, her husband was targeted and killed, and she knows her bridges are burned going back to Iraq in the future, and she's very, very clear about that. I mean, she's living in Jordan and says, unless some other country takes me, this is my home. I have nowhere to go back to in terms of going back to Iraq. So it's also, there's lots of sophistication and politicization, and it's not just because of their refugee status. It's, people have been living through that living with the Ba'ath regime, but living also in a war, consequences of war and the impact of the sanctions. There's a, um, you mentioned one of the books actually um, that talks about Iraqi women refugees is the one you mentioned by Nadia Ali. There's a very important study also that came out very recently by Yasmin Jawahiri on the impact of the sanctions on women in particular in Iraq for those who are interested in studying it further. Yes. I have one more question. Sure. Not, not directly. What was it raised is what kind of government, what kind of regime is substituting the Ba'ath regime, and where are they in that? Mm -hmm. And they feel very absent and invisible. And many actually are angry at the government for not providing more aid, but also not making the issue more visible in terms of dealing with it. So mm -hmm. they are being made invisible in part by their own government, by their the complexity of the legal status, but also by the international community. I mean, if we are looking at, we have, if we say one and a half million between Syria and Jordan, and there's about another 200,000 between Iran, between Iraq, uh, between, sorry, Egypt, between Lebanon, right? So this is, but 
if I ask someone, they probably won't know. And in, in terms of the conversation and the discourse, public discourse about this in the United States, it wasn't until Human Rights Watch published its report, right, in 2006 and Amnesty International and other organizations that the debate started to become more visible in the United States you know, administration. And even if we look at the number, the meager number of, um, of Iraqi refugees allowed in the, in the U.S., between 2003 and 2000, actually, and six, 406 people were taken in. But, be, but because of the pressure and also the um, introduction uh, by the Kennedy um, um, proposal, uh, Senator Kennedy, uh, we see now higher numbers of about 15,000. But these actually, and it's very, very politically important to do the analysis in that regard, that it was for those whose visa were processed before, in part, or those who worked with the Americans or are, you know, either are translators, et cetera, and are in, um, you know, under direct threats because of that. There's also a criteria for single women, for women with disability, and actually three of the women I interviewed, one divorced, one single woman, uh, and one actually who was a translator for the Americans. So it's actually these three they, they cut across. Uh, but the assumption is that, or at least under the Bush administration, and now it's interesting to see if this will change under Obama, um, is if we acknowledge that there's a problem, that means that the project of liberating Iraq has, has failed. So there's also, it's intertwined with how many refugees you acknowledge there is, what kind of needs. And the U.S. has been contributing money to UNHCR, but not doing enough in terms of resolving the status. And, and, and again, if we are to think, what would happen to those people, I mean, come 10 years from now, is a question that is on many people's minds, and including mine. Yes? One thing that I actually appreciated very much about the work that CARE International did in the case of Jordan um, relates very much to taking some of the issues I mentioned in regard to violence, sexual harassment, uh, the politics of um, um, the pu public sphere and the private sphere and it, what it means to be visible or invisible or made visible or made invisible um, in each, but also providing more empowerment. And if we are to talk about urban refugees, these are people with skills, with education, if they're teachers, and to live in a situation where you can't work, you have no schedule, so part of the aid that was very impressive in terms of Taking those into account, it's not just, and many women said, it's not just the money we need. We also need that dignity of treatment in terms of what kind of programs are introduced, how are we part of the decision-making, what kind of structure is available for us in terms of negotiating those, how are they sensitive to the particular needs of women in terms of if it's a single woman, if it's a divorced woman, particular needs in that regard, but also um, needs that relate to, um, to forms of violence, uh, to what happens when you go out to seek aid. Right? What kind of questions, what kind of stories, what kind of vulnerabilities result, um, and, and so on and so forth. So there are issues that relate to aid in general, but there are ones that are very particular to, um, to the women. Yes? Did many of the women go to Iran? If so, why not or why? Actually, under Saddam, and there was a period where um, some people were forced out, there more Shia left to Iran, and actually some managed to return. The ones that are mostly in, in, uh, in Jordan are Sunni, although there are Shia as well. And it depends in terms of what politics um, and also financially that um, at some cases, whether you're Sunni or Shia, if you can't find a job, you can't find a job and you have to leave or if you're targeted for all kinds of reasons. So the majority of the ones who were in Iran, although there are still some, 
went back, but a different kind of migration patterns moved in the other direction. And somewhere we could imitate the Jordanian accent really well, which was also very interesting. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, um, what were some of the circumstances that they expressed about choosing to identify or disidentify as Iraqi? Well, if I'm, and actually I was even sexually harassed when I was conducting, or my association with Iraqi, when if a taxi driver would ask me, why are you here, for example, we start talking and it's a long trip, and I say I'm conducting um, interviews with Iraqi refugees, there's particular, I mean, because of the vulnerability um, associated with refugees in general, but with refugee women. So f women are very aware of that. So they're very aware, you know, what cab they take, where they sit in the cab, how they speak in public. If they keep silent, they might pass, how they dress. One woman actually wore the veil, not because she wanted to, but she because she knew that if she wears it, she would get a different treatment in the public sphere. So it's that kind of sophistication, but constant negotiation that I, I try at least in my work to address. And address because it also reflects the agency and the complexity of the situation, but also the particular gendered ways. And I think aid, when it starts to talk and understand how deep those levels are and how they affect the negotiation of the public sphere or access to the public sphere in particular, I think it allows for more um, comprehensive and the fact that some of these women re relied on aid for six years or so and will probably rely on it for years to come. So that also is important to keep in mind in the analysis as well. And it's not because they want to be dependent, it's just because there aren't many other options. Yes. What's interesting actually is Jordan now is, is, if you want to use the word hub, because many of these aid organizations can't operate in Syria. They can't operate in Iraq. Jordan becoming a, a, a space where they serve the larger region and not just uh, Jordan in particular. Uh, but what's also interesting is how nervous the government and the Jordanian government, and for those who study Jordan, we all know that there are also the gongos. There are the governmental, non-governmental organizations, right, that work with, uh, uh, that are supposedly non-governmental organizations, but they're under the tutelage of the government because you can't, anything that would allow for independence, freedom of association, makes the government nervous in that, and I'm sure you're, you're well aware of that. So what actually comes up is restrictions on some of the women I interviewed because they wanted to form organizations to address particular needs, right? So that it's social support, but also try to fundraise, work with school children, raise money over the internet, and they face some restrictions from the government in that sense because, and if they were Jordanians, they would face some restrictions as well. It's not because they're Iraqis, but because they're Iraqis, it adds another layer as an outsiders. The other element that is important also to take into account is that the Jordanian government is afraid with such a large number of refugees having nowhere to go that this will be like the Palestinians that they're going to stay and then what will this do to the composition, right, of the, of the Jordanian with the majority now Palestinian population, what, what would this do, right, to the, to the composition? And then the third element that's important and it came up in the aid um, 
um, analysis that I was doing is that the government now is, um, is asking and actually enforcing that aid is provided to all those who need it, be they Iraqi or Jordanian, in order actually to avoid, because they don't want the Jordanians, you know, prices are jumping. If you visited recently in Amman, they don't want everything to be blamed, right, on either the government's inability to provide support or the fact that there are more refugees who are making everything more expensive, be that prices of apartments, price of food, etc. So if you're a poor Jordanian, if you're an Iraqi in need, the organizations need to provide aid for both. But many see it as a way also in which the Jordanian regime is trying to negotiate with all of these demands, both uh, from its own constituencies, but also from the Iraqis who are present in, in Jordan. Well, I think there was one question. Yeah, we can take it quickly with a yeah, minute. Yeah. yeah. Just a, it was a nice short one. Yeah, okay. I just wondered how, uh, how optimistic you were um, with the new Obama administration and whether or not there actually is any difference between the point that it would be a big result. I think what's important yeah. to see what kind of conversation is happening in regard to withdrawal from Iraq, but Karl Rove was on our campus actually a few weeks ago, and what was missing from any conversation that he, or the themes that he presented is any form of accountability. And for me, it is important. You go into a country, you talk about refugees, you talk about consequences, and I think as long as that is absent from the public conversation in the U.S., the harder it will be to address some of the many of the issues that I mentioned. So, Karl Rove. <laughs> but I mean, it was, I, I expect a lot, actually, not because I support him, etc., but the arrogance with which he spoke and completely disregarded any, even, you know, to say you got in, you destroyed the country. And there, and then when I stood up to ask the question, you know, I didn't get in line. coming and I'm close by so if you want to keep the conversation you know just contact me my information is at Denison's website so